0: welcome. And let me tell you why you're not seeing what you normally see. We work on a very thin budget here, as you know, and we have a very small team at our house church, which is part of the house church network all over the world. We call Our Safe Harbor. And obviously, many of you are in it or you wouldn't be watching this. Uh, Dr. Hunter is at work right now, and he can't be with me. We have to record these ahead of time. So, Uh, I'll be recording, we're hoping, three today, so that'll mean three that he's not with us. I'm sorry if that disappoints any of you. Just be aware, he doesn't get paid to make the long drive from Antioch, Tennessee, here and sit and prepare and talk. Uh, We all have different ways of getting through our life with jobs and moving the money about, and we keep things very, very tight here, so he needs to be at his work Uh, this week and maybe next week. He wasn't sure how long that would take, so we're recording a few without him. Back to the old Just Patrick on on Wednesdays. I hope that you can tolerate it. We are in Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 32 today. We ended last time with his um, disciples being very upset and confused. alarmed. Alarmed would be a better word. At Jesus talking about how hard it would be for rich people to get into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, he is trying to really get these guys ready to live without him. Think about that. Now, Jesus has just over three years to get this group ready. Now, obviously, the Holy Spirit's going to have a huge hand in getting them ready for what they're about to face. And so that gives them quite a, quite a, a leg up on their journey. But you and I, as we look at this, need to remember that these were human beings, that they had dreams. They had stories told about this great messianic kingdom that was coming. And they had this idea that when the Messiah came, he would enter Jerusalem triumphantly, that he would be enthroned there. The temple would be uh, redone. It, It was already being redone by Herod, but redone properly. And that Israel would once again have a, uh, an earthly kingdom, and that Jesus would be that line of David continuing on off into the midst of the future. That is not why Jesus came. He came for a much larger kingdom that was worldwide and eternal. And it is hard for them to deal with this because his way of entering the kingdom, he has to first of all defeat the enemies that we face and the two greatest enemies we face are sin and death to defeat those he's got to go to the cross so you're caught up now he's about to make their day even worse mark 10 32 they were on their way to jerusalem with jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid please remember jerusalem at this time was not considered safe for jesus because people had been threatening to kill him, and had even tried to a time or two. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him, and three days later he will rise. I don't think any of us should be surprised at all that the apostles could not grasp what Jesus just said at all. Let's take a look at some of the absurdities in their mind. The absurdities that they would have heard. One, who is it that's going to try to, well, not try, but Jesus says will uh, arrest him. They will uh, condemn him to death. The religious leaders. Today, perhaps, you could say elders, or bishops, or pastors, all the way up to cardinals, archbishops, pope. Uh, if you're a Catholic, or um, metropolitan, if you're Eastern Orthodox, or if you're a Protestant, then it would probably be pastor, elders, bishops, somebody, or council, or convention, something like that. Your top religious authority, whether it's a person, a convention, or whatever it is, if you were to hear well, they're going to get me and they're going to condemn me to death. Now, that would, sh- that would make your head spin a bit and you'd wonder at the truthfulness of the statement, especially since, and every Jew knew this, nobody could condemn anybody to death except Rome. And so to say that the religious leaders are going to condemn him to death was quite the shock. And they were not ready for that at all. Or the next one. What, what what are Jews proud of? They are correctly and rightly proud of being Jews. God's chosen people. Why then would God allow his son, the Messiah, no less, to be handed off to non-Jews, Gentiles, who are not going to gratefully receive him, but rather treat him with the utmost disdain, humiliation, Disrespect possible. The flogging. The beating. The spitting on him. The mocking. How is this even possible? To a Jew, mocking God was unthinkable. Absolutely unthinkable. But for Gentiles to be allowed to mock the Son of God and then kill him? Oh my goodness. Their heads are spinning. They don't know what to do. Now in Mark... That ends this conversation. And it is very possible that they had muttered conversations among themselves, but were afraid to speak to Jesus because where are they headed? They're headed to Jerusalem where all the bad stuff's going to happen, where they had hoped and and believed with all their heart that all the good stuff was going to happen. You cannot cannot imagine more of a one eighty of emotions, dreams, hopes, desires than this. You you just can't. I cannot imagine even a marriage betrayal or a governmental betrayal of its citizens or something which is greater than this because this had been set up for a millennia at this stage. Uh, It's according to how you time things, but a millennia is safe. A thousand years of dreams, hopes, songs, prayers, Focused on the Messiah, and now this is what he tells us. So they're, they're wondering. Well, then something to our mind very odd comes up. Verse 35 And then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, Teacher, they said, We want you to do for us whatever we ask. <laughs> Sounds, uh, well, to use a Yiddish word, since we're dealing with Jews here, a lot of chutzpah in this, doesn't it sound like? I would suggest to you, however, that God does respond pretty well to boldness in prayer. In fact, in Hebrews, we're we're told to to do that, and James, we're told to do it. We're told repeatedly to come before the throne of God and tell him what we want. Well, James and John do seem to be pushing that envelope a bit, and they probably torn one end off at this stage. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. I love that response. Instead of Jesus saying, who do you think you are? You're basically not much more significant than the grounds of sand you're standing on, except that God created you in his image. Therefore, you have soul and spirit in you. So let's back off and see if you can ask this question in a better way. That's what I would have expected. Uh, If not outright annihilation or get thee behind me Satan thing, as he did When he spoke to Peter, they replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. This is just another way of saying, we don't know what's going on, but we believe in you. We want you to know we've got you. We are ready to stand with you. Now, James and John were not cowards. They were sons of Zebedee. And we know from elsewhere in scripture that that meant that they were zealots, which in other, t- well, in Roman terms, would have been called sicarii or knifemen because they were part of an underground political guerrilla movement that was to strike out against anyone who collaborated with Rome or, of course, any passing Roman soldier that they happened to find alone. Yes, it was a violent group, perhaps more violent in intention than in actuality, but it was still based upon violence and cleansing the Jewish people of the the rot and the disease of the Gentiles, most particularly the Romans. Well, here comes uh, James and John saying, all right, you just told us some stuff that's really messed with our heads, but we're with you. I'll be at your right. Let him be at, you know, one of us at your right, one of us at your left. Um, A very traditional way, and, and still is, by the way, for people who worry about these things at dinner tables. Who's going to sit beside the host, and who's going to sit on the other side? And I don't understand why any of that is important at all. But I do understand why it was important back then, all the way up through the medieval ages, is because the person on your right was trusted, the person on your left was trusted, because they are within knife strike of you. And therefore, they could have a knife secreted, secreted, for you Americans, secreted about their bodies. Um, And therefore, you don't know that they're armed or not. And you don't know if they're passing you poison or not. You have to have the most trusted people you've got right there. And so, it's not so much that they're saying, we want to be ahead of all the others. There's some of that in there. And I don't think we should remove all of it. But it is mainly... We don't know what's going on, but we want to be identified with you, and we will stand with you. Does that help? Hope it helps. Because if you don't understand that concept, then this seems incredibly petty. And this wasn't a petty moment. just looks that way to our eyes. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Jesus said, can you drink the cup I drink, or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Now they answer, we can. But they have no idea what it is. Now, what cup, what baptism? Uh, Once again, Semitic languages paint more pictures and stories than they do definitions. So cup here, they would have understood that the word cup means, are you going to be able to handle what's coming at me? Because if you're on my right and my left, it's going to come at you as well. You've not separated yourself. You're not down table from me. It's coming for you. And this cup can include violence, suffering, humiliation. In fact, he's talked to, he said that, hasn't he? Mock, spit, flog, and death. And he even says, are you ready to be baptized with what I'm baptized with? Here's where I would love to take about an hour and a half segue, but I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to put this in your head and think about it. And if you want me to do a special long Monday morning message on it, then let me know. You can always send in things at info at rsafeharbor.com, uh, and we can go that direction, all right? To the Jews and many others uh, who, who use the same form of, of, of language, some form of it, Aramaic, Hebrew, Arabic, of various types, water was used as a very potent symbol. It was, water was life, but water was also death, depression, and fear. Because as a desert people, the idea of water coming against you suddenly was terrifying. And if you've never been, let's say in the American Southwest, where you have wadis, which just look like dry gulches. But when rain comes, it's, there's no way to explain this to somebody who's not seen it on film or been around it literally within seconds a wall of 20 feet of water can be running down these wadis. Same in Israel and in the, um, the Middle East, when rain does come, as it does, if it hits too fast, walls of water come. And to be immersed in that water was death. And so in the Old Testament, you will often find water used as a symbol of depression. You know, has flooded over me, the seas have roared against me, but also as the home of all demons. And there were demons that were named, uh, you know, Lydia, for example. There are demons in the water, and they, you were terrified of the demons in the water. So when he says, are you ready to be hit with and submerged in that thing which is coming to submerge me? they said, we can. In some ways, this is rather like the confidence of young people who have been trained. They've gone through basic, perhaps they've gone through advanced infantry training of whatever name the particular service uses for it. And and they are well-trained. Don't put that aside. They are exceptionally well-trained and they are well-equipped. But then the first bullet flies. And when it flies your direction... A lot of them who entered with the, we got this, like in the American war between the states, a lot of people signed up saying, we'll fix this this week, and it'll all be over. And then after the first battle, when they see the carnage on the field, and perhaps their selves are even wounded and mentally just um, torn apart by what they've seen, then it hits them. And so I think what we're seeing here in James and John are the pre-trained, they're trained, But the pre-first real battle, confidence. It's going to hit him hard. In fact, the apostles are going to scatter. But not John. He sticks close. He may have popped out for a while, though, if you read carefully. But he's, he's back. Well, Jesus said to them, Well, I'm glad that you can. Glad you're so confident. He says, You will drink the cup I drink. And be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. Now what that means to be, you know, if we want to be really specific is we don't know. We don't know. One of the big questions which we will never be able to answer, no matter how hard we go at this, is what did Jesus know and when did he know it? Because we see Jesus being surprised at faith here. Frustrated at what happened over here. Turning to his apostles and saying, will I even find faith when I return to the earth? There are things that Jesus did not know. He indicated to his apostles that he did not know when the end of the world was going to be, but he knew his father did. And so he's looking at them right now saying, you know, I'm not picking who's going to be right beside me. I'm not picking places in the kingdom. God will prepare those he wants where he wants them. So once again, uh, in Philippians chapter 2, when it talks about that Jesus laid aside his his deity to take on humanity, and yet we all know that he was still the Son of God, even while in human form. Philippians 2 wasn't kidding. Jesus laid down some of his power Knowledge and such to walk among us. And I, um, if you're struggling with that, just think about this. Do you really want your two- or three-year-old to know that they are Almighty God in human form? I don't think so. And as you go through life, there's more and more that Jesus knows. But it seems actually to be not all unidirectional. Because sometimes he seems to know more, and other times he pulls back and doesn't. This is all the Holy Spirit guiding him through this veil of tears. This life that is, as one poet put it, nasty, brutish, and short. Well, when the ten heard about this, the other guys, they became indignant with James and John. And why would they not? Why, why would they not? I knew it too. If you had 12 buddies, uh, you were part of a group of 13 guys, real close buddies, and then you'd found out that the leader of the group Somebody had approached and said, listen, we want to be the besties and nobody else here. There there had been some tension here. Jesus called them together and said, you know, this is so important. This is an election year. Memorize this passage in any election year in in the United States. By the way, if you're not in the United States, pray for us because it seems that every year is an election year and has been for 20 plus years now. and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, by the way, th- these are comfortable words for us. We've heard them in sermons. We've even sung bits of them in songs. This would not a comfortable thing for them to hear. And this may not be a comfortable thing for you to hear. Frankly, I think anybody who wants to be president has disqualified themselves because they want the job. It is, it is a, it's hard for us to get this concept. But government often runs, walks in, and not just earthly government, local church government or denominational government will walk in and say, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, we're doing this for you. And people buy it every single time. We're going to fix this thing, we're going to make sure these people have food, we're going to take away all this that's, that's troubling you, and you go, oh yes, oh yes, please, please And you vote people in and have no interest in really doing those things. But what they do, they're also doing to your neighbors and are backed up. Please remember, every law is backed up by the power of the fist, the handcuffs, the gun, and the tanks. Be careful what you vote for. Be careful who you say you support. In fact, maybe we should sing songs more like, This World Is Not My Home... I'm just a passing through. Maybe rather than linking arms with these things, we should be an alternative community or as Philippians tells us, um, and not just Philippians, it's there are several places that we are aliens, strangers and pilgrims in this world, giving the world an option. They don't, they don't have to live like this. Jesus says among us, you can tell who is a leader in the kingdom of Christ By the fact that they lead by serving, not by lording lording it over anybody. They don't walk in making the rules for anybody. You might have noticed that about our Safe Harbor Church. We don't say to you, these are the things you have to believe to be a member here. We don't say to you, if you don't believe what we believe about us, about this, that, or the other, you're wrong. And you're just going to have to go find one of those other lost churches. No, no. We don't lord it over you because God said we cannot. And remember, he says, those who lord it over you always smile and act like they're doing it for your good because we love you so much. And it's untrue. Absolutely untrue. Be wary. Remember who your king is. And it is not a pastor, a bishop, a council. It's not any of those. It's Christ. It's not a president. It's not prime minister. It's Christ. Well, I'm going to come to one of my favorite stories here. And um, you may not know why it's one of my favorite at first, but we're coming to a miracle. The miracle to me is not the impressive part of the, sermon, uh, of the story. Now, when I say that, some people get a little nervous and they think, does he, does he not believe that this is a grand and glorious miracle? Yes, it was a grand and glorious miracle. Look at it this way. Uh, I love magic. I I love, and I don't do it. I just like watching it. And I don't try to figure out how they did it. I really just, I'm not interested. I just enjoy the surprise and the process to me. Uh, Drives my wife crazy because I want to know how everything else works. And I'll take it apart till it's in pieces. But magic, no. Let's say a magician comes out. And they lay a handkerchief on a table and then they remove the handkerchief and there's a full-grown elephant. That's pretty spectacular. You know, I don't know how they got the elephant in that thing, but it's great. I love that. You can say mirrors and I don't care. That was fun. So I think, you know, I really liked that magician and they're going to appear here in Nashville. So I'll go see the, what, the, what they're doing now. And they lay down a handkerchief and I'm going, oh, this is going to be good. And they lift it up and there's a quarter under it. I'm going to go, okay. And if you turned to me and said, listen, getting a quarter out of the air is pretty impressive, isn't it? I would say, you know it is. Unless the first time you saw him get a full-size elephant. When I look at Jesus, it doesn't surprise me that he can turn water to wine or make blind people see or lame people walk. None of that surprises me because I know he created the universe that's, pretty, that's a big elephant. When you create the universe out of nothing, without even a handkerchief on a table, that's impressive. Now, is restoring sight to the blind impressive? Absolutely. But do you now understand why I say it's not the miracle that I pay attention to? Because I assume he can do that anytime he wants to. I believe he can do that anytime he wants to. There's something else in the story. couple things. You Ready? Here we go. Verse 46. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road begging. Got to stop here. We're going to do a pop quiz. I've told you we don't make you sign a list of what you believe and the like, but I didn't tell you there weren't going to be pop quizzes. So here's one. Name five beggars in the first century. Well, all right, I'm going to buzz in here. You can't. You just can't. Now, if you read, if you're a classicist, and you've read all of the early Roman writers and Greek writers, you can probably pull this off. But why should we know Bartimaeus' name? Why? He's a beggar. He has no standing. He is poor. He has no education that we know of. He has no backup or family because the family wasn't bringing him to Christ as other instances, families or communities or friends brought. No, he's beside the road, probably placed there beside the road by his family every day while they go off to work in the fields or the shops and then collected every evening. This is a man who's never even been to the temple because you're not allowed to go into the temple. If you have any visible disfigurement, if you are not completely whole, all your fingers, toes, legs, arms, that... And sight would be part of that. So this is a man that doesn't go to the temple. He didn't have anything to offer any of us, but God knows his name. You may feel like you're a nobody. Please remember that you're not a nobody. God knows your name. He knows your situation. Read Psalm 139. He even knows what words are in your mouth before you say them. He understands you're getting up, sitting down, walking about. He gets it because he gets you and he knows your name. So that's, that's one reason this is one of my favorite stories. But there's, there's another part. Please remember what Jesus is doing. He is teaching along the way to Jerusalem where horrible things are going to happen to him. The apostles are all in disarray. The, the group is still just uh, throng. Throng is a good word. It's a throng. And they're pressed upon him moving forward. This is church. This is Deuteronomy 6. Go check that out. Not now. We're busy. Make a note. Um, This is talking about the Lord as you rise up, as you sit down. Very much like Psalm 139 says, God knows you. So here, Jesus is doing church. And the blind beggars start shouting and interrupting church. What do you do? What do you do? when somebody interrupts church. Well, I've told these stories before, so you may have heard these stories in a different format than today. My wife and I were down in Jamaica, and it wasn't for some grand, glorious kingdom reason. We were on a cruise. And we took a cruise with about 90-something people that were church friends from around the world. And um, it wasn't one of those where we get to go for free because they get, no, everybody paid the same. We just went together, that's all. Well, we were in Ocho Rios, Jamaica, and there's a lovely young lady who was, do- was the tour guide for the bus we were on. And as she was doing her spiel and doing it well, I leaned over to my wife and I said, that young lady's in pain. We're going to wait when the bus empties. We're going to stick around. And my wife just nodded. She knows that that's part of my training, is to spot that sort of thing. So Everybody's off the bus, and I walked up to her, and I smiled, and I said, Sister, thank you for taking care of us. And of course, she says, Oh, that's fine. And you know, I can also read that in her head, she's thinking, Please get off the bus. I need you know, just to not talk for a minute. And I said, You're in pain. And she looked at me, and she goes, Oh, oh I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to be you know, letting people. Because immediately, she thinks of, I'm not doing a good job. I'm not going to get tips and such. And I had to wa- wave her off that one. I said, no, 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 that's my job, to know these things. Tell me what's hurting. And she was having a migraine, cluster headache, migraine, sinus. I'm not an MD. I wasn't trying to figure that out, but she showed me where the pain was. And I said, do you have medicine for that? And she goes, I do, but it's at home. I can't get it till tonight. I said, we have medicine. Would you like to have that medicine? Um, And she goes, you have medicine for this? And I made a joke, which didn't really land well. Uh, Because we were all from uh, the Detroit metro area. I said, We're from Detroit. We have everything in our bags. Um, And we got her some medicine, talked to her for a bit. And she goes, Who are you people? And so we told her we were from this church. And she asked for the name of it. And I gave her the name of it, the denominational name of it, uh, the non denominational, never a denominational name for it. And she goes, Oh, we have one of those here in Ocho. And I said, Yeah, I know you do. She said, I went there once well, there's a thread. And I'm aware most people would politely pass by, but I'm not most people. I said, sister, tell me what happened. And immediately she, you know, again, oh, no, they were lovely people. And, I'm, I'm, and I said, no, I get that. You're not rejecting them. You're not saying anything bad about them. But you had an experience there. She goes, well, I, I just like to praise the Lord. And they were, it seemed uncomfortable you know, some churches have ushers to find your seats. A lot of churches in the group I grew up with had hushers to calm you down. There was a, when we were in Rochester, which is Oakland County, just north of Detroit, we had a church that was growing so big, we had three services on Sunday morning, and I loved it, just, you know, one to the other. And we had, um, and the third service, which was really kind of a different service, we called it Mosaic because it was a bit of everything. Uh, we had a, a young couple visit, just married, and uh, they had visited a couple times and then told me they were so excited that they were going to go see, I believe it was her parents for the first time since the wedding, in Pennsylvania. Well, they made a rookie mistake. They loaded their car the night before. And so all the windows were broken out, everything stolen, all the wedding gifts gone. Well, I heard about it and I said, let us help you. Let us try to piece this together. And they said, well, we have insurance. I said, what's your deductible? They told me that. And I said, let's take care of that for you. And they said, we're not members here. And I said, that doesn't matter to me. So I went up on the stage. I didn't tell people the backstory. I just said, we have a young couple in need of money, but it's not a lot of money. So just McDonald's money. And we put out baskets and we came within 10 bucks of it. I don't remember if it was lower or higher. Uh, If it was lower, we would have made it up. That just kind of blew them away. But then they were gone. They were gone. They'd gone to Pennsylvania. A few weeks later, they were back. I had noticed they were back because three services, I was going from one to the other. So I start preaching, and she stands up, hands in the air, and starts screaming, thank you, Jesus. Well, that's new. That's new. And I just kind of waited for a bit, and my worship... Team over here on the side just all looked at me, and so did most of the people in. And because most of the people at that service didn't have a church before they found us, in fact, 70 something percent of our church had no church before they found us. Uh, and we're a church of at that time, I think we were running around seven and a half, eight hundred uh, at this service, probably 120 maybe. And I just waited thinking, She'll do this for a bit, she'll maybe say a testimony and she'll sit down. Not what we do, but not not wrong either. Well, she just kept going. And I realized after a while, she's not going to stop. So I left the pulpit, the stage, walked down, walked over to her and put my arm around her. And she's swaying. So now I'm swaying, which is about as close to dancing as you'll ever find me doing. Uh, Unless I'm on a terribly turbulent sea, this is about it. Other people just started gathering around us hands over everybody. So we have this big amoeba-like blob now moving back and forth, back and forth. Well, physics always wins. And uh, eventually oxygen deprivation hit her and she collapsed in in the pew. And everybody turns and looks at me again. And I said, well, let me tell you the story and you folk restored them to wholeness and you didn't even know it. And we love these people. By the way, we still love those people. They they get in touch about once every two years just to let me know what they're doing. Uh, Well, as we're walking back up, everybody's kind of getting back in their seats. I'm walking back up. My my worship minister said, well, are you going to finish your sermon? And I said, no. And he said, why not? And I said, evidently, God didn't like it. He poked that woman with a stick. So we're going right to communion. And we did. It's fine to interrupt church because church isn't a place, a procedure, something we do on Sunday morning. It's people. And Jesus only has a little bit of time before he is killed. He's got some important teaching to do. And he stops. Because Bartimaeus needs him. Do you see it now? To me, that is more impressive than restoring a man's sight. The fact that Almighty God, when he's in a hurry, and he has a lot to do, and there's limited time, will stop everything. Everything. When you ask him to, and we'll listen to you. I was visiting some people once before preaching and had to spend the night in their house. It was a little church that didn't have money for a hotel or the like. And I was a young fellow, so I figured I'd give it a go. And their little beautiful four-year-old girl went to bed and asked if, uh, if uh, Patrick could come in the room too with the parents. And I said, Sure. And she knelt down and said her prayer. And that's one of the first times it really hit me that the master, Lord, and creator of all things had just stopped all noise and everything in heaven because he was going to listen to a four-year-old girl. These stories, they're important. Well, a lot of people are trying to shut him up. He's saying, son of David, have mercy on me. And by the way, he wouldn't be looking for eyes. He's looking for alms. He's looking for money to help justify his food in the family. Well, many rebuked him, told him, be quiet, hushers, you see. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, is he declaring that Jesus is Lord and Savior? No, son of David. He's saying, fellow Jew, help me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. What a... What a 180 for them. Hush, hush, hush. And then God says, no, no, let him come up. Oh, lucky you. <laughs> On your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. You ready for the next really mind-blowing, important part of this story? Almighty God is standing in front of a blind beggar with zero standing ever. And he doesn't say let me help you out with that. I'm going to give you your eyes back. You're going to be a part of the community. You can even go to the temple now. This is going to be great stuff. No, he does not. He looks at Bartimaeus and he goes, what would you like me to do for you? What do you want? In Mark, in the NIV, it is phrased, a blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see it's actually a little more complex verbiage than that. And some versions get it a little bit better. It is, if I could see, almost a subjunctive, as in, not this may never happen. I have no hope it ever will happen. But you know, if I could have anything, I would really like to be able to see. And Jesus says, okay. Do you see why I love this story? It's an incredible story. Go. Jesus said, your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Wow. We're going to leave it off there because we, um, we don't want to enter chapter 11 and the entrance into Jerusalem and then only have a minute to talk about it. So hang in there. Just a reminder, Dr. Rick Hunter is, is fine. He did have the flu for a couple of weeks, and that put us a bit behind and then we had a snowstorm, an ice storm, which put his work behind schedule for another couple of weeks. So he is catching up there. He is still a part of us. He still loves you. I know you miss him. If you have any questions about anything, if you want to know more about us, uh, send us a note. Info at OurSafeHarbor.com. Look, our, um, look at our website, OurSafeHarbor.com. And also subscribe to our YouTube channel. And you just add a word, our Safe Harbor church to find it. Subscribe, share it. Everything is free. And I think we're about 600 videos in. So that's a lot of material. All right. God bless you. And we will see you the next time you tune in.